So oftentimes, it's not that we can't figure out how to learn more. It's just we 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 have a, a natural tendency to go back to problems that we know how to solve, and sometimes it's our obligation to take on the task of trying to figure out how do we solve problems that we don't know how to solve. So, Tim, after listening to this, I want to ask you: When was the last time you heard something that really helped you get a new perspective on life? Wow, oh, it's it's rare, isn't it, Kurt? That we encounter people with ideas that are so simple and yet so big, and it just makes you want to be a better person and stop watching reality television for the rest of your life. <laughs> I am with you. Let's all stop that reality television watching, right? So, all right. I want to welcome our listeners to Behavior Grooves, and my name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. This podcast, the one that you're listening to right now, engages listeners in more than 120 countries every week. We're considered a global top 20 social science podcast by Chartable. And we were voted the number one behavioral science podcast by the readers of Habit Weekly. These are two accolades that we are proud to have earned in 2020. Now, our guest for this episode is Max Bazerman, a Harvard professor of negotiations whose work spans decades and appears in the 21 books he's authored. We want to share the conversation we have with Max with you during the holiday season of 2020 because, well, because Max offers so much hope in the midst of a crappy, crazy year. We wanted to end our episodes for 2020 on a note of hope. More than just hope, we wanted to share the voice of someone, as his colleagues and friend Dolly Chug might say, who doesn't just believe in gratitude, he absolutely builds it. He shares his vision in a way that makes me want to be a better person, to build a better life, expanding the size of the pie so that more people can share in its abundance. In negotiations, one of the hurdles that we have is getting people over what we call a mythical fixed pie, where they assume what's good for you is bad for the other side and vice versa. And to see that there's opportunities for joint gains from trading across issues and developing creative solutions. And for me, um, sort of creating more value in the world um, is just a extension of that from a two-person problem to a 7 billion person problem or a, or a 40 billion sentient entity. Problem. Wow. Isn't that the truth, Kurt? I mean, his mindfulness is inspiring. Now, we've been fans of Max's work for many years, but his latest book, Better, Not Perfect, reads like a capstone. And it's extra cool that he always seems to be building on the cumulative body of his own work. In that way, he's making good use of his creative work product. And even with that, he might see it slightly differently. But, uh, but I think many of us, if we did an audit of how we use our time, could might reach a conclusion that we could allocate our time a bit more eff efficiently. Max's worldview seems to be stitched together with the thread of human kindness. We found that to be incredibly inspiring, and we wanted to share it with you as we near the end of one of the most challenging years in modern times. Yeah. Abundance, generosity, creating a better world through individual choices are all themes in Max's conversation with us. And we hope you find them as inspiring as we did. All right. We don't want to give too much away and we don't want you to get his comments out of context. So we invite you to sit back with a Silver Oak Cabernet or a Sam Smith Stout. Now you're going to get that in a minute. <laughs> and just enjoy our conversation with Max Bazerman. 
Max Bazerman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Uh, it's uh, terrific to be here to talk with you. Yes, well, we're excited as well. Let's get started with the speed round. Kurt, you want right. to get started? I will. So, so Max, coffee or tea? Which do you prefer? Coffee. Mm, quick. Oh, okay. I like this. He's a speed round guy here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Would you rather have dinner with your favorite sports star or favorite musician? Musician. Okay. Oh. Any, anyone come to mind? Just, I, I know. Um, uh, like young contemporary folk singers, people like Aoife O'Donovan, Tracy Grammer. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Good. Singer, song, singer songwriters. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Would you rather have a silver oak Cabernet or a Sam Smith's chocolate stout? Wow, you've done some homework on me, so I can't give a simple answer to that. But, but the answer is uh, I'll go with a silver oak because it costs so much more. I can go by the same Smith's so messed out on my own. Um, but, um, but you pick kind of best in category and wine and beer from my perspective. So I don't know who you've been talking to, but you've been talking to one of my friends to have that question. So, yeah, so silver oak, um, Cabernet. Um, Alexander Valley, which is uh, less expensive of the two expensive options, yeah. um, is uh, about as good as wine gets and Sam Smith's oatmeal stout. Um, uh, I, I would also say that um, a lot of Quercia Bella wines from Italy are yeah. way up there to, to go with it. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah. I am a big, not not so much the Cabernet drinker, but the stout drinker. I am I am definitely one. And I have not tried the 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 chocolate stout by Sam Smith. So that's on my it's now on a on a buy list for me. So Yeah, so I don't know how health conscious you are, but another reason to go with the silver oak cab <laughs> is that the bad points in terms of things that cause cholesterol probably four times as bad on the oatmeal stout as uh, as on a good dry <laughs> cabernet well I, I will i will go in moderation so there, there you go, go. <laughs> all right I, I you know i love that let's just justify wine right away over <laughs> over stout i think that that's that's a good place to start uh, okay last last speed round question for you is it okay for someone to enjoy their increased goodness Absolutely. It's even better for them to enjoy their increased goodness. So, um, I, and, and in the book, uh, I use the term maximal sustainable goodness, because I think that if we um, push people beyond a certain level to do good, it just won't become sustainable. So mm. far better to encourage people to be better in a way that they actually enjoy being better and want to continue on constant improvement in their life. Yeah. And and then, and obviously we took that question right from your book as as we're going forward, but would love for you to just kind of talk to our listeners a little bit about what led you to this book. What were the impetus for writing this book? And then what do you want to get what do you want your readers to get from it? What what are the main key points? Sure. So um I, um I came to the topic of ethics as a research topic fairly late and I was certainly influenced by uh, Dave Messick um, and Ann Tenbrunsel, who were my colleagues at Northwestern, and then my colleagues Mazreen Banaji and Dolly Chug at, at Harvard. Um, and these people really provided the pathway to think about the topic of ethics. So most of my work over the last 40 years is in the areas of decision-making and negotiation. Um, and I've long focused on um, how, to, um, how, how to direct people to 
wiser decisions and more effective negotiations often to create value for all the parties involved in the deal. And um, as I moved, as I started to dabble in the topic of ethics, I was certainly attracted to the work of Bentham and Mill and Peter Singer and Josh Green, who talk about instead of how do you create value in a two-party negotiation, how do you create as much value as possible across all sentient beings on the planet? Um, and so that just seems like such a good topic. So if I wanted to think about what do I want to accomplish in life, um, well, I think I'm going to have enough silver oak and, and, and Sam Smith's oatmeal stout in my life. Um, and, and I don't plan on giving it up. I don't plan on suffering um, in order to do good. But while leading a fine life myself, um, I think of the goal of creating as much value for others as being um, a pretty good direction to lead um, the remaining years of my life. Mm, that's fantastic. It is fantastic. Was there, Just out of curiosity, were any of those authors or uh, more inspiring than, than others? I mean, you go back to, I mean, Bentham and Mill. I mean, my gosh, you know, these, these guys had some yeah. really great ideas. But, but was there any that was just that was like, oh, this is, this is what will put, put you over the edge? So, so everything's complicated between kind of just pure wisdom and, and knowing the people. So, you know, so again, I, I would highlight Mestic and Ten Brunsel and Banaji and Chug as my long-term friends who kind of nudged me in the direction of, of ethics. And, and um, so I appreciate those efforts. You know, Bentham and Mill are, were amazingly original thinkers. Um, as, as I started to move more and more toward ethics, I read more and more of Peter Singer's work, and I've now read a tremendous amount. And I mean, he's just so amazingly insightful um, in terms of the brilliance of his argument, um, despite the fact that he seems to annoy lots of people. Um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Um, and then Josh Green um, is my colleague who I've, you know, I've only known for about 13 years, um, but he's been, uh, he, he's a professor in our psychology department at Harvard, but, in, and I've worked, I've written papers with him. He's my friend, but I also think he's my kind of coach in philosophy because mm. as I started on this journey, I was deprived, uh, I was lacking a, of a liberal arts education. And um, so I was just way behind on lots of fronts. And so Josh has been my kind of personal mentor um, in terms of the philosophy that I should have learned long, long, long ago. <laughs> well, all right. Um, so uh, you, you've said you, you were lacking in that liberal arts education. I, I find that hard to believe. In, in what ways wow. were you? I mean, <laughs> with all of the work that you've done, it has to lend yourself to a broad kind of perspective on the world. But what, what, why, do you, why do you think that? What, what, well, what's that? Well, so I'm the first, uh, so I'm 65 as I talk to you today, Kurt, but um, you know, long, long ago, I was the first kid in my family to go to college. Okay. Um, and I was supposed to do something practical. Um, so <laughs> I did among, it turns out, among the least useful things I could have done um, at the University of Pennsylvania, I was an accounting major. Um, <laughs> and um, I was narrow and focused and in a hurry. 
And because um, the family was not too wealthy, I, I graduated in three years. So I was wow. narrow and I was focused and I was getting my courses done. My grades weren't particularly great. And the notion of taking a philosophy course never entered my mind. Um, I, I, I am proud of sort of the amazing um, co-authors I've had over the, my many decades. And, and a, a lot of them um, are world-class psychologists, world-class economists. Um, and only recently I've kind of added philosophy to kind of people who I kind of try to follow closely and learn from. So, so in my life, I have wanted to learn from a wide variety of diverse perspectives, um, but that's developed more and more um, with aging, I, I, sort of 18-year-old Max was not a particularly broad, <laughs> open-minded, intellectually oriented kind of person. All right. So I have to ask from there, how, how do you go from accounting into yeah. then the graduate work and, and you know, obviously decision-making and negotiation and then ultimately into into ethics? What was that progression from accounting into into this? Well, that's a lot of years. So, um, so a lot of random things happen. Um, and um, along the pathway to, to, of trying to graduate quickly to get, to get, so I could save a year of tuition, um, um, over the summer between my first and second year, I took a couple of courses at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh was my home and uh, I was home for the summer getting a couple of credits uh, um, completed and I um, kind of learned about psychology. And by okay. the time I returned to the University of Pennsylvania, um, I joined uh, Marty Seligman's Learned Helplessness Lab and spent a lot of time hanging out um, with psychologists and 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 I found the whole world of psychology far more interesting than I had found um, undergraduate accounting classes um, mm. and yet I was a, a bit on the practical side um, so I I wasn't about to switch gears and go to a psych grad program so I went to an organizational graduate uh, organizational behavior program um, and by the time I was an assistant professor um, I was studying um, decision making, which paved the way to negotiations, and and I spent the majority of my career on those two topics. And I I'd really say that it's a, kind of the the you know last twenty five years um, that that ethics became more and more more um, relevant, more 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 and more central to what I do for a living. Oh, that's cool. Now, uh, jumping back to Better Not Perfect, uh, your, your latest book, you noted that uh, creating more value in the world requires that we think beyond ourselves. So, what what do we have to what what do we need to overcome in order to to do that? Because this is hard. It's hard for us to do, right? We don't do it all that well. So. What do you think we need to overcome? Yeah, so um, so if I'm going to go back and talk about negotiations for a little bit because um, in negotiations, one of the hurdles that we have is getting people over what we call a mythical fixed pie, where they assume what's good for you is bad for the other side and vice versa. And to see that there's opportunities for joint gains from trading across issues and developing creative solutions. And for me, um, sort of, Creating more value in the world um, is just a extension of that from a two-person problem to a seven billion-person problem, or a, or a forty billion sentient entity problem. Um, if we want to bring in the other animals, and we can talk about other animals um, as you see fit. Um, but but I think that um, 
some things are just simple. Um, so selfishness is obviously a barrier to creating more value for other people. Um, but a lot of people haven't ever thought about um, when they're in their closing days, um, what do they want to have accomplished? Mm. Do they want lots of money in the bank? Because uh, um, I've, I've done the arithmetic. Um, if you have a lot of money in the bank, um, when you die, you don't get to spend it. So um, it's unclear what the, what, what the money was for. Um, so that should strike some people as providing the notion of um, th th that there may be a limited value on pure selfishness. But most people aren't selfish, but they are what Josh Green would call tribal. So Josh mm -hmm. Green wrote this amazing book, uh, Moral Tribes. And while we claim we believe in the interests, in equality of interests for all, most of us are very, very far from engaging in that kind of behavior. So we tend to do favors for other people who are part of our tribe. And tribe could be family, it could be religion, it could be um, the university you went to, your ethnicity, your nationality. Um, and, and typically when we behave tribally, we're not being equal because when we um, give, scarce resources like spots in, a, in college or mortgage loans to people who are like ourselves. Turns out we're using up resources that people who aren't like ourselves don't get access to. Um, so uh, there's an awful lot of good people who, who believe that they believe in equality, yet they act in ways that show favoritism to their own tribe. So I think tribal behavior um, is um, another simple answer. Um, another answer is um, that we are short-term in our thinking. So mm. um, one of the implications of being short-term is that we're destroying the earth. Um, so we're, we're kind of destroying the environment so that um, future generations are gonna get stuck with, uh, uh, with our bad behaviors regarding climate change or you can see what happens politically in terms of growing the national debt. Um, so who's who's going to pay that debt? Well, I'm 65. I'm not. I get to <laughs> move on and skip that debt. But um, but that debt's going to be left on future generations um, because of our dysfunctional behavior. So whether we think economically or environmentally, um, we see that that we engage in short-term behaviors where we're basically sliming the next generation. And there's more value to be created across all entities, those who are alive now and those who will be alive in the future by taking a longer term um, perspective. Um, I think that there's um, value that's destroyed because we don't like speaking up. So there's mm evildoers around us. So Bernie Madoff created a Ponzi scheme and he's a bad guy and he's in jail. And um, But it's too bad we didn't, we didn't catch him earlier. And part of the reason that we didn't catch him earlier is that people who had hints that his returns didn't make any sense, didn't look harder at it. They didn't speak up about what they saw that was problematic. So I think that creating a norm in society that when people around us are do, engaged in bad behaviors, it's our moral obligation to speak up, um, is one more pathway to creating more value in the world. You, you mentioned in one of the chapters in the book or, or sections in the book was, was titled, Not Noticing is Not a Good Excuse. And, and this last part that you talked about with Bernie Madoff and various different pieces, I think 
really highlights that point. So what is it that we can do in order to to, to go about our, our lives more so that we're, we're noticed? I know you, you said that you called yourself a first-class noticer, or you're trying to become a first-class noticer. So how, how do we, just us normal folks, yeah. you know, go about trying to become a first-class noticer? Yeah, so, so Kurt, um, I, I'm sure I didn't claim to be a first-class noticer, but rather <laughs> I, I strive to do that. And, and so I wrote a book in 2014 called The Power of Noticing. And while many people write about their expertise, for me, um, it was a self-recovery program from the observation that, that I was pretty lousy at noticing in life. So, um, you know, so, so, so some observations are really mundane and simple, um, such as on the way home from dinner, um, Marla, my spouse, has noticed so much about what's going on around us that would, would just never be part of my natural attention. So uh, I think I'm pretty good at focusing. And I always thought that was pretty good until I started to see so many examples of people who are trained to focus who miss critical events. And it's easiest to see in stories that we can see in the newspaper, but I think it's relevant to all of us in lots of different contexts. So I, I mentioned Madoff, but we could also talk about the Theranos board where Elizabeth Holmes develops this miracle drug testing system um, and she has a board of really, really famous people, and they sit around um, and nod their heads, and they don't bother to notice that she's put together a board of people who are largely over 80, who know nothing about healthcare, mm -hmm. that there isn't anybody with a relevant expertise in the room, that when they ask hard questions, she dodges them. Well, I think that there's enough hints there to say that there's something wrong with what's going on in this in this meeting. Um, you know, I think that the problems with um, Volkswagen and and the way in which they've they've killed thousands and thousands of people by by the emissions they've put into the air illegally is stunning. And there were lots of intentionally bad actors. There were also lots of people who should have noticed that there was something wrong going on and who should have spoken up. So this is a company that was well entwined with the government, with its union, and everybody kind of passively sat around as um, Volkswagen was destroying the environment and killing people along the way. Um, I think it's our obligation to speak up, but to, to make it more mundane, um, I think all of us have been in um, meetings where the presenter was presenting and something was off. And often what I find is off is that they're not giving us the data that we actually need to analyze the problem that we're asking. So that they're, they're basically misdirecting our attention and keeping us from noticing what what they don't want us to notice. And this, um, the, you can think of a con artist as doing the same thing or a magician. So how does magic happen? Well, one of the tools is misdirection or getting you to focus on some some issue intensely while they move the ball or whatever else has to be moved in order to make magic seem seem to occur. So we have limited attention and when we see other people around us who are trying to um, to deceive us, 
I think it's our, uh, we should be more on the alert and we should notice that and take action. So is it a mindset coming in that we need to, uh, again, you bring in this concept of focus is, can be a good thing, but yet that kind of puts you know, the proverbial blinders on, on our side. So we're not necessarily taking in these other aspects. So when we're in that meeting and, you know, again, the, the board of Theranos where, you know, if you look around, these are great people. They're, they're, they're accomplished people. And so, but you have to sit down and actually notice that we don't have scientists on here. We don't have uh, younger people who might be more technology um, focused and and that's hard, I think, for people to do. So is it just a mindset of, of really being more of a, cr- a critic or a skeptic or, you know, are there, there are certain yeah. ways that we can do that? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think we can also encourage other people to be more skeptical. So, um, so people who plays, who play devil's advocate mm-hmm. in organizations are often disliked. They're too negative. Um, and, and, um, I, I don't want to tell people who, sh- who they should like and not like, but I would say perhaps you want to appreciate the benefits that a devil's advocate brings to a discussion, even if you don't agree with their position or don't want their position to prevail in the end. There may be value in at least listening to um, an alternative perspective um, and taking it seriously. Oh, that That's fantastic. I, I, I just had this big star around this idea of, yeah, the con artists, the misdirection, the misinformation. And it just makes me think about, you talk about companies intentionally disseminating disseminating misinformation. Uh, to what degree do you think that that's happening and people are not speaking up? Do, do you have a feel for the uh, disinformation and, and misinformation happening on a much broader scale than we're actually acknowledging? Well, sure. I mean, I, I think I, I think that many negotiators want to misdirect you from the attribute of the product you're trying to sell them, um, so that you so that you're not paying attention to where they're weak. And and we treat that as a pretty natural process. That sort of if I focus on the excellent attributes of my product and hide the the lesser attributes, we don't we don't necessarily uh, call that unethical if I haven't lied to do that. And certainly companies are going to end up doing um, similar things. So we focus on the attributes where we're strong rather than advertising where we're weak. But it's, 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 I, think it's, I think the obligation is on the other side to take the initiative to probe and to learn. So um, uh, um, in one amazing episode of my life when I was working with um, the, for the Department of Justice against the tobacco industry. Um, and, um, and, and there was an amazing team of litigators for the, for the Department of Justice that I was working with, but the case was um, infiltrated by the, by the number two official of the Department of Justice, a guy named Robert McCollum, um, who um, had worked for the law firm representing the tobacco industry in the case. Um, and um, he interfered with my testimony and tried to get me to make statements that would work against the interests of the Department of Justice. And it happened at among the busiest points in my entire life, and I didn't know exactly what was going on. And so I didn't adjust my testimony, but I didn't, didn't do anything because I didn't know exactly what was wrong I didn't know what was happening. I wasn't sure. And then seven weeks later, 
I'm reading the New York Times um, and a guy named Matt Myers, the, the president of Tobacco Free Kids, one of the, he's probably the world's leading anti-tobacco advocate in the world. Um, a story is in the New York Times that he comes forward with the fact that McCollum tried to manipulate his testimony in exactly the same way. Hmm. And, and, wow. and so at that point, I knew I was supposed to call the press and tell them and things like that. Uh, but I was disappointed in myself that I hadn't done something seven weeks earlier when the episode first happened. So if you Google Max Bazerman tobacco, you can find this story and things like that. So I came forward, but I, I had to be pushed to get there rather than realizing that I had a moral obligation to do something far earlier. Um, so I think that when things don't make sense, we need to go figure out and learn more. So rarely do we see someone taking the money from the, from, um, from the safe. Yeah. Rather, we get hints. And when we get those hints, I think we need to do a better job of learning. When, when I tell the, this tobacco story in longer form to executives, they say, Max, we don't see why you're beating yourself over the head. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't change your testimony and you came forward. And when I tell the same story to journalists, they say, yeah, when you can't figure out what's going on, that's where you can find the best stories. <laughs> so there's a kind of a different mindset to this. And I think that um, I think uh, a lot of leaders might want to have more of the journalist mindset on that problem of when you can't figure out what's going on, that's the best time to dig in and learn more. I, I love the, the journalist mindset. I think that's a great idea of, of thinking about how we can do that. But I think you also bring up this human nature aspect of, you talked about the uncertainty, right? You, you, you weren't quite sure what was going on. And in those moments, it's hard for people to take action because what if you're wrong, you know? And so... It yeah. So, so I think that that's right, Kurt. Um, and, and I would add, and I was really, really busy, but many <laughs> of your listeners would tell, tell you that they're constantly really, really busy. So the question is, how do we go figure stuff out when we're busy? So um, I, I gave you the short version of this, yeah. um, but um, I'll, I'll give you sort of a, a few more sentences. So I, I read that New York Times article about Matt Myers when I was in London and I had a full day of work ahead of me. So I called my spouse, Marla, and told her what I just read. And I said, can you figure out what I'm supposed to do about that? Okay. And then I went off for a full day. So, so I read this at 5 a.m. when I woke up um, in kind of an alert state of jet lag. Um, and um, by the time I came back from a, uh, from a full day of activity at 5 p.m., Marla um, sort of told me the um, the not-for-profit legal firm that was going to represent me and told me what, what journalist was about to cover my story for the Washington Post. And the fact that sort of Marla could hap have that happen in a small number of hours highlights the fact that I could have acted on the information when it was first when it, when I first confronted it um, and made a couple of phone calls to Washington to figure out what I should have been doing about it so so oftentimes it's not that we can't figure out how to learn more 
it's just we 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 have a, a natural tendency to go back to problems that we know how to solve and sometimes it's our obligation um to take on trying to figure to take on the task of trying to figure out how do we solve problems that we don't know how to solve it almost sounds like your own trolley experience your own trolley problem like what what should I do here? Am, am I gonna am I gonna push the guy off the footbridge or not? I, I don't know if I should do that just yet. <laughs> yeah. So I would say it a little bit different in the sense that I would say if you ask me in the abstract, what should someone have done in the episode that I found myself in? I think I would have come up with this with an answer that would have said you should you need to figure out what just happened. Yeah. Okay. But in the midst of it, I think it's just very easy to make to to do what's easy in the short term rather than what you know you should do in the long term. Yeah. I, I think that's a very insightful piece, right? Abstract is very different than the real world that we live in. And as, as you said, we're all busy. We're all, you know, everything's going on there. I, I want to go back. Um, at, at one point, you talked about uh, you'd like to see us move away from descriptive accounts of what we actually do when it comes to moral decision-making and more towards a prescriptive approach. Uh, we can do better in the real world, you note in your book. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you, so so what what does that mean for people and, and, and what what are we trying to, to get at with that pres or prescriptive versus uh, descriptive? Yeah, so, um, so, so before I get to ethics, going backwards to decision-making and negotiation, my work in both of those fields has tended to move, not, not away from, but to combine prior perspectives. So hmm. to take normative perspectives of how we should behave versus descriptive perspectives of how we actually do behave to find something in the middle that prescribes how do we move more toward what we think we should do. So in behavioral economics, we hear the term rationality. And rationality is what we should do, to, to where rational is to maximize whatever it is that you want to maximize. But Kahneman and Tversky and others have um, sort of highlighted the systematic and predictable ways in which we don't behave rationally. And um, in the last two decades, we've seen a move toward, and what are we going to do about it? And you know, so we see answers like move out of our system one or intuitive thinking to more deliberative thought. Um, we see answers like we can nudge people to move them into the right direction by the work of uh, Thaler and Sunstein. So we've moved from sort of stating the norm normative goal versus the description to prescribing how do we move people in the direction we want. Better not perfect tries to do the exact same thing in ethics. Mm -hmm. So we start with a normative benchmark. The normative benchmark that I go, I, I use is utilitarianism, which is um, uh, an unfortunately poorly chosen title, um, but basically saying um, an ethical decision is one that maximizes cumulative welfare in the world, okay? Um, and th so that's a, that's a goal state that Bentham, Mill, Singer, Green would push us toward. And um, then there's a whole psychological literature um, on behavioral ethics or how do we actually behave. And what I do is I try to blend the two to provide a prescriptive approach of how do we move your behavior in a way that you will accept and choose to follow 
that will move you in the direction of utilitarianism, but kind of like rationality with the awareness that you're never going to quite get there. Hmm. You're never going to engage in a set of behaviors that will create the most value possible um, because we all have some selfish motives, some tribal motives, et cetera, that are going to keep us from creating as much good as we can. And that's certainly true for me, but um, I'm pretty happy with the idea of I could be much better next year than I was last year. And if I keep on having that attitude, um, I think that that could be a path toward my maximal sustainable goodness. Yeah, I have a um, my family. We we create a family charter kind of thing. It was from one of a one of the episodes we did. We had a recommendation from a, a school psychologist who was talking about one of these things that you can do with your family to help them do that. And one of the the principles that we have in that is be better. You know, we try to get better every day. And so I like yeah. your 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 concept of this. You know, I I want to be hopeful that next year I'll be better than I am. Am today, and and I think it goes back to what you started at the very beginning when you talked about this maximal sustainable goodness, mm -hmm. right? It's this idea that this perfect utilitarianism probably isn't sustainable for most people, and and so you you have to figure out exactly where it is that you're going to 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 make that best effort to to make the biggest difference, but yet still be able to to do that next year and the year on and the year after that so yeah i think that's exactly right i'm, I'm also inspired by dolly chug's um book uh, the person you are you, you want to be um where she talks about a distinction between being a believer versus a builder and and she primarily is focusing on um in the world of ethics uh, on sexism and racism and and she highlights that there's lots of people um who believe in greater equality mm. but the real trick is how do we get on the path toward being a builder that helps create a world that um in fact creates more equality for all and and yeah. i i find her work very inspiring and i in many ways i think of my book is um um not being as 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 focused on um equality but on a broader range of ethical um, topics, but um, but I, I think that her moving from being a believer to a builder, or what I think of as on the path toward being better, um, fit very very nicely. Well, on the path to, to getting better, we uh, hope to be emerging from this pandemic at some point in the in the future, hopefully with a vaccine. Uh, in the book, you talk about corruption a, a, a fair amount, and to what degree, Max, are are you concerned about? corruption influencing not just the creation of the vaccine but possibly the distribution of it absolutely yeah, yeah. I, i'm not trying to you know plant seeds here but but you kind of teed this up so i was just curious what what your thoughts are about that sure so let's let's step back six months um to when covid first hit and all of a sudden um we had limited resources um, to protect ourselves, whether it's PPE or, or or medical equipment to save people's lives in the hospital, um, and we saw this in different countries. And um, you know, one notion is we could plan in advance. We could think about how do we harness the limited resources either of our country or of the planet um, to to save as many lives as we can. Um, Alternatively, what we could do is we could tell people to fend for themselves and every state should make their own decisions. 
um, which is what the U.S. administration chose, and create absolute chaos and kill tens of thousands of people in the process. Um, so I, you, I, I think you can see what's happened. Um, the you know the uh, um, uh, Isaac and Jim Sabanius do this amazing analysis that looks at what would have happened in the U.S. had we followed the strategies of other countries that have held back um, COVID effectively. Um, and it's just kind of remarkable um, how important planning, intentionality, um, thinking long-term is to saving people's lives. So we, we've already seen it on COVID. And now you're asking the next question, what about vaccines? And um, and there are organizations that are working um, to solve to, to think through how should the vaccine be allocated because when it first shows up, it turns out there won't be seven billion um, uh, uh, um, vials instantly available for every person on the planet. So who should get them? And um, at a minimum, I would say. Um, now's a good time to think about it, not when the vaccine becomes available, because you can certainly imagine the country A invests in a company in country B where mm -hmm. the vaccine is created. And meanwhile, company B, the, the company in country B already has some kind of ambiguous commitment to country C. Okay, and now who has the authority to determine what's going to happen with the first 100 million doses? Yeah. And right now is a good time to think about it. It's also a good time to think about how are we going to make sure that the companies that can manufacture rapidly will be ready and contracted regardless of which company actually comes up or which companies come up with the first vaccine. So there's an awful lot of coordination and you can uh, easily imagine that asking the question, what will save the most number of quality life years on the planet would lead to dramatically different solutions than assuming that competition among lots of people in a highly conflicted environment will solve the problem. We already tried that one, and it really didn't work out for the United States in terms of um, the allocation of scarce resources during COVID so far. Yeah, it, there's an another aspect of this whole COVID piece is is who's getting tested. And you look at, uh, you know, I, I remember my wife just being extremely upset with the idea that everybody in the MLB, the Major League Baseball, got tested when you know other people are, are lacking in tests or not getting test results back. And so you can see the, the disproportionate um, amount when you think about what the, the vaccine could be is, is, all right, so does it go to the highest payers, players, uh, you know, payers, excuse me, or, or, you know, celebrities, different pieces. And so again, what is the optimal way of distributing this that is going to, as you said, you know, have that the biggest impact on, on lives saved and, and, and long-term lives. So, um, with that, I, I want to go back to, to one other piece, and I know then Tim is probably itching to get at some music here, but uh, you talk a lot about the value of time in the book. The whole chapter is is associated with this. And and one of the things is that you said that we're not always very good at valuing time or trade-offs. Um, you know, and you bring up the, the Kahneman uh, and Tversky kind of thing about Will you take 20 minutes to go and, and save $30 on an ink cartridge versus, you know, $50 to go save, you know, uh, money on a $2,000 computer and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the difference there is not really 
um, uh, a good. So when we think about this, what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about from our time perspective? Well, how can we how can we better allocate our time to be more uh, productive, more happy, more more efficient, whatever it is that that we want to maximize from that? How do we do that? So, um, so uh, all of us have two resources that we could think about as pretty scarce. One is money, and another is time. Uh, on the money side, um, there's a there's a movement in the in philanthropy called effective altruism, mm-hmm. and it's all about how do we um, donate our our money to create the biggest uh, bang for for our buck. And 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 quite honestly, most of us aren't very good at doing that. So we give to fairly pretty inefficient organizations. Um, and GiveWell.org is an organization that can give you very good guidance or the life you can save.org. Um, these are organizations that could direct you to how to spend your money more wisely. And there's even an organization called 80,000 Hours that's targeted after young people who have about 80,000 working hours left in their life on how to pick a career path where you can create the most good in the world, which I mm-hmm. find kind of remarkable. But but many people who are going to read my book um, don't have 80,000 hours left, and, <laughs> and they've already picked a career path that they're kind of quite satisfied with. But, but we all spend our time um, – make decisions about how to spend our time. And, I, and I'm not sure we do a great job of doing that. Um, and so in the, in the book, I tell the story of when, when I turned 50, um, my birthday present to myself was I quit four editorial boards um, because I kind of reviewed my life and thought about what activities am I doing that I neither enjoy nor do I think I'm being all that productive um, by pers- by pursuing these tasks and reviewing lots and lots and lots of academic papers <laughs> just doesn't seem like the best use of my time. And, and I completely believe in the peer review system. But at the age of 50, I also thought I knew lots of 30-year-olds who actually wanted the work, um, who would pay more attention and do a better job. So, um, and that, and I thought I could use my time in ways that created more value. I think all of us could ask, could sort of think about the question of um, not would it be nice to say yes to that request, but is that the best use of my time? I've also attended far too many um, charity dinners where they. Um, um, try to serve me a rubber chicken. And, uh, and as a vegetarian, uh, I knew that I wouldn't have even wanted it before I became a vegetarian. Um, and and I, I sat through a boring evening. I, I was happy to make the donation, but the three hours of time was not how I wanted to best contribute to society. So I think we could all review our lives and and I'm sure we would come up with different answers and different assessments. Um, and I don't mean to tell anybody what they should enjoy doing, but, uh, but I think many of us, if we did an audit of how we use our time, could might reach a conclusion that we could allocate our time a bit more efe- efficiently. Yeah, you, you talk about comparative versus absolute advantages as part of that time. And you, you bring yeah. in a really wonderful story about you and your wife walking yeah. the dog or, or cooking dinner. And, yeah. you know, your, your wife is, is um, uh, absolutely advantaged on both of them. Exactly. That's <laughs> but true. Comparatively, doing dinner is, is a yeah. much better use of her I, I, time. I do want to highlight that I can load a dishwasher. <laughs> Shockingly well. Okay, but, but, but back to the two tasks that you picked. Um, it is true that the dog likes Marla 
better than she likes me. And it's dramatically true that Marla can, can cook um, much more effectively than I can. Um, so, so basically, um, the, in that example, I highlight that if we have 45 minutes to, and the dog has to be walked in, dinner has to be cooked. Um, despite the fact that um, Marla, the dog would rather have Marla as her walker, um, I think that the right allocation to create value in the world is that Marla works on, on the food and I work on, uh, and I take the dog for a walk. Which, yeah. I, by the way, I'm pretty good at. I'm, I, 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 I like my dog a lot. Um, and, and, but I think it's just a nice, simple example. Uh, you know, I, sometimes that you hear people saying we, we divide everything 50-50. Well, that, to me, that sounds like that has to be wrong. Yeah. Um, because we're missing the opportunity uh, that Ricardo talked about in terms of um, comparative advantage when we don't allow those who can do one task and enjoy that task more, um, be in charge of that task and make trade-offs across different issues. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, we got to get back to Tracy Grammer and the singer-songwriters that you're listening to. What, uh, uh, what's on your playlist these days? Yeah, do you, do so you have a COVID playlist? Uh, changed? No. So, 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 Tim, I can tell you take music much more seriously than I do. And, <laughs> and, I, have to, and I have to tell you, Marla also um, controls the Pandora station that we're listening to <laughs> most of the time. And, and so the, the only time that I really need to even think about these issues um, are when I go for a long drive without Marla. And, and I might, I might want to think about sort of what I'm going to listen to as I drive. Um, but but Marla also her part of her task as a good spouse is to take into consideration my preferences. So it's um, undoubtedly true that um, old folk singers um, from Simon and Garfunkel, Joan Baez, um, uh, Tom Rush, uh, Carol King um, uh, are still just wonderful, and and I. And I don't get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. Um, so I'm very happy with um, music from when I was a young person. Um, but in terms of, but but I but I do go. Um, I, I over the last 20 years, I've spent many many hours at a place called Club Hasim, which is one of the um, um, uh, oldest um, folk music clubs that, that's still in existence in Harvard Square. <laughs> and um, so I'm in touch with a number of um, sort of younger generation singer-songwriters. So Aoife O'Donovan, who was with Crooked Still, I think she probably has the most beautiful voice that I've ever heard. Um, Tracy Grammer's voice, I think, is just kind of wonderful. Um, Chris Delmhurst is a, another name um, uh, who I think plays beautiful music. But, but I, I don't claim to be a connoisseur. I'm telling you what, what <laughs> makes my ears happy. That's all it is. That's it. Doesn't have to be any more than that. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, one, go ahead, one question we've been asking a number of actually pretty much every every guest is so do you listen to music when you work and and do you listen if you're writing or if you're maybe doing other things or do you need silence? I don't need silence, but I typically don't put on music while I'm working. So, um, so I'm, I, th I think about it, um, <laughs> but I don't. So I'd say I listen to music. Um, um, so we, Marla and Becca, the dog, and I spend time in Vermont. We spend time in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When we, when we're in the car, um, if we don't have a po podcast on, um, like behavioral grooves, um, then, then we're, we're likely to be listening 
to music. Um, we're likely to have music on um, from kind of early evening um, through dinner um, in the background. So that's when I'm uh, when I'm likely to listen to to music. Um, um, and again, that would be a subset of the time that Marla listens to music. She yeah. she pays attention more than I do. Yeah. Well, Max, thank you. This has been absolutely just a wonderful discussion and thank you. And I think um, for all our listeners, uh, definitely go out and, and, and get the book because it it's, it's packed full of just wonderful prescriptive ways that we should be looking at the world. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Tim. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Max Bazerman, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our overcoming, short-term thinking, self-centered, non-sharing, tribalistic brains. <laughs> Packing it all in, huh? Well, damn it. That's what he was talking about, right? We, we are limited because... We've evolved to have these short-term thinking, self-centered, tribalistic aspects of ourself. But, you know, I think what Max was saying and what I'm taking out of this, I think, is that we don't need to be constrained by those, that we can we can actually overcome that and we can be better. We can actually get past those shortcomings of us as humans. And yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, these aren't superhuman powers either. This is what every single one of us is ordained with when we're born. This is just part of our DNA to collaborate, to be a part of something that's bigger than us, to think about a bigger pie is so important. This is why our ancestors were willing to pick up Bob when Bob broke his leg and drag him along with the tribe because we we are a community. We are community beings. And yeah. yet we, we don't act that way these days. Yeah, I think it's... It's absolutely true. And I think Max did a wonderful job of just saying, hey, he he outlined all of these things, right? It said, yeah. yeah, we have we have lots of problems. We we are, you know, tribal and that inhibits us from sharing resources equally, right? We we're selfish in that way. We have short-term thinking. We're destroying the environment and increasing the national debt, and we're leaving it for future generations to fix, right? And and we don't speak up about evildoers, the ba Bernie Madoffs and and the Elizabeth Holmes of the world. Oh, yeah. And and those are the things that, yeah, they're out there and they make news, and we can get really disheartened because of that. Yeah. So we don't need, yeah, we don't need to be so competitive, right? Kind of, kind of getting back to this idea of this myth of thinking that we have a fixed pie. We can, we can build the pie. The pie continues to get bigger all, all the time. Right. Yeah. So we don't need to be so short term in our thinking. We don't need to be so tribal, but here's a question for you. How often do we actually show our gratitude for others? How, how good of a job are we doing? And again, this doesn't require superhuman powers, but how often are we taking time to recognize other people? Roy Baumester said, relationships thrive on the four to one ratio, four good things to one bad thing. How good of a job are we doing in that? Yeah, I think we can do better. We can always do better. We can do better today than we did yesterday. And we can do better tomorrow than we do today. And so gratitude is one of those things. I know for me, I, I don't do it enough. I don't tell the people who make an impact on my life, big or small, 
all of the time what they do. And particularly given the pandemic that we're in, we have less of those bump in moments that Liz Fosline talks about. So we have to make a, a, a concerted effort to go and to make that gratitude there. But if we did that, if everybody did that, I think we'd have a better world, right? We could also have a better world if we paid attention to people who have good salmon recipes, but are on opposite sides of the political vein if we just took the damn salmon recipes and enjoyed it. <laughs> well, and, and 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 felt that, hey, because they're on the d- other political side, if they're on the other tribe, that doesn't influence how good their salmon recipe is. Exactly. I mean, they may look different, dress different, have different customs, but we can learn from them, right? And so how often do we find ourselves recognizing that we learn something cool from a particular person or a particular news source that may not be the right. news source or the person that we typically learn from. And to just be open to those opportunities, as you said, as it wasn't that Annie Duke who talked about the fish recipe yeah. from yeah. that, right? <laughs> yeah. the, the idea that we, you know, if, if they're on the other side of the spectrum, that they are just an innate evil person and I can't take any insight from them and they'd have no redeeming qualities, I think is one of the worst things that can happen. And and again, showing gratitude, being open to learning from them, taking the initiative to go out and to try to learn from them. That's where we're going to really improve our lives. Yeah. And just one last thought on this. I've seen it with um, friends of mine who are on the left, who are really irritated with Trump on many, many levels. And they are not giving him credit for Operation Warp Speed, which I think is a a perfectly good name for if you're 13 years old, but not for you know a vaccine for a pandemic. But the fact is, they got it done in a record, in amazing time. It is a remarkable. Now I don't know what kind of corruption there might be on the back end. I've got to I've got to do some digging, and I'm I'm curious about that. But in some ways, so what? Like we've got really really great results from the process that they use. Because we've got a we've got a vaccine within months of discovering that this is a global uh, virus. But but even what you just said, Tim, I think we have to stop some of that thinking. Is that the idea that we're grateful, but there has to be something nefarious on the back end, like well, what's the graph that's going on? And I'm not right, saying there we, has to but be. You, but you're going with that, you know, an automatic thing, and it, it's a natural response, right? They're yeah. on the other side. They always do evil things. So what is the evil thing that they're doing now? Even if this is a good outcome, there had to be some, you know, evil aspect, and evil is probably the wrong word, but there had to be something. We have to stop that thinking. We have to say that salmon recipe is great, and they didn't get around it by, you know, torturing somebody to get that that <laughs> salmon recipe or paying somebody off to get that salmon recipe. They just did it. And that's okay. And we need to be better at just saying, you know, there's good, and I, I will quote the this, and, and people may take this the wrong way, but there are good people on both sides. Oh, of course. Uh, and, yes, and, yes, and yeah. you know, and, and yes, you can, you can denounce the the bad deeds that they do. And you can denounce some of the, all of the the bad deeds that they do and all of the horrible aspects that they do. But, you know, some of the worst people in the world, there are some redeeming qualities about them. And, and let's try to find those. Not saying that we, we disregard the evil that they do, but 
all right, let's try to have that olive branch and reach out and, and figure these things in. In part, I was just thinking of using Max's recommendation to adopt the journalist mindset mm-hmm. to, to say, okay, so so it we don't have to take things at face value. We could actually do a little investigation on ourselves. We could learn something for ourselves. And, uh, and, and I, I didn't mean to be accusatory because I, I'm really hopeful uh, about what's happening with this vaccine. I'm really, both vaccines actually right now, really, all really the vaccines that are, that are coming out. I mean, that, again, that, it that, is a dozen more, you know, that are in process or so. It is pretty amazing if you think about the science and what we've been able to do with that science to to get us beyond this. And, you know, I think those are some things that we can be grateful for. But I love this concept of a journalistic mindset, right? This idea that you don't take things for face value, that you look for what's missing, trying to understand, which again goes to the Bernie Madoff, Elizabeth Holmes piece of this, where we are looking at this from a perspective of belief, but verify that belief, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, I, and I love how Max gave the story of you, you talk to uh, the corporate executives about a particular situation, like his whistleblowing situation. They're like, oh, you did just great. Don't worry about it. You were, you know, you were right in there pitching because you did it. It took a while, but you came around. And then the, the, you t- tell it to a journalist and like, well, something was missing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where the good story is. And and I, I, I just love that as an example of thinking about if we adopted a more journalistic mindset in the way we look at uh, information that we get and things that we hear, we might all be happier by having a better knowledge of uh, and better information about what's going on in the world rather than just the, believing the baloney and misdirection and misinformation that comes to us all the time. Well, and I think that goes into this piece that he talked about, again, this, the tribalistic aspect up front. And going back to our conversation with uh, Steve Martin and Joe Marks about The Messenger, and and to be a journalist, a, a real journalist who's looking beyond the spin to try to say, is this person who I trust and believe and is this messenger that I put my faith in? You have to be a journalist and just say, all right, well, is that really it? And don't just go to the sources that you normally go to. Go to sources that are outside of your comfort zone. What are they saying about things? And I am saying this as a person who is on the left of the spectrum, and I, just like you, tend to to believe certain things about people on the other side of the spectrum. And I really need to be do a better job of going out and looking at, you know, what are the news sources that they're looking at? Is there any validity to some of their discontent around a number of different things. And if there is, be like Gary Latham and and just say, this is what the evidence says. And that may go against my initial gut reaction, my gut belief, but it's I, I would rather be wrong and know that it's the truth as opposed to believing I'm right by ignoring that truth. That is really well said. That is really, really well said. Wow, I gotta, I'm gonna quote that one. That's, that's pretty fantastic. <laughs> but let me ask you this: Are you more optimistic after listening to Max's conversation? I mean, we had a tough year, and I'm just wondering: Do you do you feel a, a greater sense of uh, elevation in your spirit after listening to Max? 
Well, I think what Max shows is that we can be better. Are we going to be better? I don't know if I'm still there yet, but we can be better. And so if we work at it, or if we do something rather than just think about it, right? This is the thing that I, I, I loved his conversation is we have to be a world of doers and not just, you know, responding and listening. We need to take a perspective that if we see a wrong in the world, it's not just good enough for us to be disheartened by it and and complain to our friends and family about it. We have to get out there and do something. And that is the one thing that I do appreciate uh, from this, this year, as I think people got out and did things. And so from that perspective, there is a little bit of hope. Now, I don't agree with all of the things that people are going out and doing, but they're going out and doing. And now let's just make sure that we're doing the right things that are helping the world out and our communities out and making sure that everybody is included, all of those things. Yeah. What did uh, Martin Luther say that the, Martin Luther King said that the, the arc of moral justice uh, uh, the arc of moral conscious bends towards justice, right? Yeah. Over time. So I'm optimistic about the future in, in kind of a big picture, but I am a little bit pessimistic about how we're doing. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's times when I'm not super excited about exactly how things are going right now. Well, and, and I have, again, some of that discontent in particular about some of the leaders that we have and their lack of a spine standing up to certain things that are pretty apparent and yet they're fearful or they're trying to maximize their own self-interest or whatever other tribal self-centered reasoning that they have and just being in a position that says hey let's actually do what's best for us as a society for us as a world and not just be so self-centered and, and to that, I think Max's idea of building a bigger pie, not just for yourself, but for others, is a really important lesson that we should take out of this. And if our leaders, if everybody was looking at building a bigger pie, then we would be so much better off. And it's not just building the bigger, I don't want the bigger slice, I want the bigger pie. If we, if we, make a bigger pie, we all get a bigger slice. And that's really the important thing. Is that is that being too crazy? No, it's fantastic, actually. I, I, my, my closing thought would be, you know, do, do something rather than just believing in it. So we, you, you pointed out lots of great acts of, of activity of uh, people taking a stand and doing something to this, uh, this past year. And that's, that's terrific. And I just think that we should keep doing that because doing is better than just thinking about stuff. Well, I love that. All right, people, hang on as Tim will give you a recap in our bonus track. Hey Groovers, this is Tim with your bonus track and groove idea for our conversation with Max Bazerman. I first heard about Max's work about 20 years ago and quickly learned how he brings a humility to his life that many of us can only imagine. There's a story that illustrates this that's worth sharing and it goes like this. 
At the end of 1999, Harvard University was recruiting Max while he was at Northwestern because of his research on negotiations and decision making. I mean, Max was really the leading scholar on these topics and Harvard wanted him. So if you think about it, here's a guy who's an expert in decision making and he gets the call from Harvard that they want you to be a full-time faculty person. And like anyone, he was flustered and not really of a rational mind at that point, and he didn't want to blunder his decision. So Max apparently visited his good friend, the dean at Northwestern, and to discuss it with him. And the dean said, Max, you're the world's leading expert on decision-making and negotiations, and you just got offered a job from Harvard. What do you want from me? I'm, you've got this. And Max replied, I know that, but this is important. Max's approach to leveraging the independent perspectives of others is so meaningful to him that he used it on himself. Max also stressed how important it was for us to be aware of the world around us and use the journalist's mindset. Investigate, ask questions, learn something new. These are the hallmarks of a life well lived, he says. And to quote Dr. Martin Luther King, Max believes that the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends towards justice at least as long as you're building and not just believing. So for your groove idea for this week, we want you to take an inventory of how you spend your time. You don't need to beat yourself up about not being perfect. Remember the title of Max's book is Better Not Perfect, but take an inventory of your time for the past week or maybe maybe past couple of weeks and make some decisions about how you'd like to make some tweaks for next week or the next month, not the rest of your life. Just next week. As Max said, think about creating value for others. You'll find yourself a happier person. With that, Groovers, it's time to end this episode and end this year. Goodbye 2020, and we hope that you go out this next year and this next week and find your groove.